Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good evening and welcome to Everything Yesterday This Evening. Um, I apologize, I could not get this out this morning. There was a lot going on today. So, Um, I do, however, hope you are geared up for a wonderful weekend. I have a great deal from Palmetto State Armory for you this weekend on their PSA Gen 3 PA-10. The regular price of this rifle is $1,309.99, but it is on sale today for $879.99. The Gen 3 model has been enhanced to improve the reliability and longevity of their PA-10 platform. This new platform includes several features that have never before been included on their PA-10 platform. Go check out the link in the show notes and pick yours up today. Uh, There's quite a bit happening in the world of guns over the last few days. Some good things, some sad things. We will begin with the sad. The governor of Washington is expected to sign an assault weapons ban into law, immediately barring residents from purchasing a host of semi-automatic rifles. The bill bans the sale, manufacture, and importation of so-called assault weapons, primarily semi-automatic rifles, with exceptions for law enforcement and the military. Hmm, isn't that something? The Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. It looks like Washington state is no longer free in any sense of the word. It passed the Senate earlier this month and returned to the House, where lawmakers passed it by a vote of 56 to 42. Gun control proponents have long struggled to define assault weapons, but HB 1240 bans more than 60 specific firearms, most of them semi-automatic long guns such as AR-15s and AK-47s, Semi-automatic pistols and shotguns with certain features outlined in the bill may also be banned, but the specific guns are not listed. Perhaps, and I know this is a novel concept, but we should begin having the discussion about the fact that inanimate objects are not blamed for the death of individuals in any other criminal act. The criminal is blamed. For some reason, they want to blame firearms and manufacturers, thereby absolving the criminals themselves, furthering the notion that you are not accountable for your actions. The moment that we devalued life by making it okay to murder unborn children, we broke something in the collective human psyche. Let's have that discussion. This ban will take effect immediately after Inslee signs it. Assault weapons are civilian versions of weapons created for the military and are designed to kill humans quickly and efficiently. If I pull out a baseball bat and I beat your skull to pulp, that baseball bat is an assault weapon. And why should the state and criminals be the only ones that have a monopoly on weapons that are designed to kill humans quickly and efficiently? What historical lessons have we to look upon where only the state and criminals have weapons that can kill citizens? I can think of at least a few. Uh, If you think for one solitary second that this is about safety instead of power, I have a bridge to sell you. Let me know you're interested. Gun control advocates 
like to prey on weak-minded individuals and suggest that these rifles are military rifles, and they just aren't. Semi-automatic rifles require one trigger pull for every shot and would actually end up putting members of the military at a disadvantage if they were actually used on the battlefield. The ban is part of a gun control package pushed by Inslee and Attorney General Bob Ferguson this legislative session. Lawmakers previously approved a 10-day waiting period for all gun sales and mandatory firearm safety training for prospective gun buyers, as well as a bill allowing the state to sue gun makers. I believe this will be overturned by the judiciary as it is an extreme violation of the Second Amendment, but you deserve what you allow. If you vote totalitarians into office, you get tyranny. On the good side of things, a bill that would have banned the sale or transfer of so-called assault weapons in Colorado failed in a Democratic majority state house committee early Thursday, even after the sponsor of the measure proposed a much narrower prohibition on devices that make semi-automatic weapons fire at a rate similar to automatic firearms. House Bill 1230 was rejected in dramatic fashion in a six to seven vote in the House Judiciary Committee at about one o'clock in the morning following a 14-hour hearing that featured testimony from hundreds of people. Rep. Elizabeth Epps, a Denver Democrat from the lone prime House sponsor of the bill, proposed two amendments that would have limited the bill to a ban on the sale of either either rapid-fire trigger activators and or bump stocks. I'm slightly in shock right now, Epps said just before the final vote on the bill was taken and after her amendments failed. I won't lie, I'm also in shock, but I will take the W and walk away. Another win came in Oklahoma where a federal judge issued a ruling and said prohibiting marijuana users from owning guns violates the Second Amendment. That restriction, U.S. District Judge Patrick Wyrick concluded in U.S. v. Harrison, is not consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, which is the constitutional test that was established by the Supreme Court's ruling in New York v. Bruin. The Oklahoma case involves Jared Michael Harrison, a marijuana dispensary employee who was pulled over last May on his way to work for failing to stop at a red light. Police found marijuana and a loaded revolver in his car. Although marijuana is legal for medical use in Oklahoma, Harrison was not an authorized patient. So he was charged with illegal possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia under state law. He was also indicted for violating 18 U.S.C. 922 G3, which is a federal law that makes it a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison for an, quote, unlawful user of a controlled substance to receive or possess a firearm. That rule, which was first imposed by the Gun Control Act of 1968, applies to all cannabis consumers, even in states that have legalized marijuana for medical or recreational use. Harrison challenged the federal indictment, arguing that it was inconsistent with the Second Amendment, which protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms. The government argued that Harrison's marijuana use excluded him from the people. A category it said was limited to law-abiding citizens, 
But in the 2008 case of District versus Columbia v. Heller, Weirich notes the Supreme Court rejected that narrow reading of the people. The court said the phrase unambiguously refers to all members of the political community, not a unspecified subset. Based on that understanding, the court said last year in Bruin, there is a strong presumption that the right to carry handguns in public for self-defense belongs to all Americans. It ruled that New York's tight restrictions on that right violated the Second Amendment. The restrictions imposed by each law only applied while an individual was actively intoxicated or actively using intoxicants, Weirich notes. Under these laws, no one's right to armed self-defense was restricted based on the mere fact that he or she was a user of intoxicants. Furthermore, none of the laws appear to have prohibited the mere possession of a firearm. And far from being a total prohibition applicable to all intoxicated persons in all places, all the laws appear to have applied to public places or activities or even a narrow subset of public places, and one only applied to a narrow subset of intoxicated persons. Unlike 18 U.S.C. 922 G3, none of these laws prohibited the possession of a firearm in the home for purposes of self-defense. In short, Weirich says the laws cited by the government took a scalpel to the right of armed self-defense, narrowly carving out exceptions but leaving most of the right in place. 18 U.S.C. 922 G3, by contrast, takes a sledgehammer to the right, imposing the most severe burden possible, a total prohibition on possessing any firearm in any place for any use in any circumstance, regardless of whether the person is actually intoxicated or under the influence of a controlled substance. The provision amounts to a complete deprivation of the core right to possess a firearm for self-defense, turning entirely on the fact that an individual is a user of marijuana. That's a huge win. I'm really excited to see that. Um, You have the right to defend yourself. It's very simple. All right. House Republicans on Thursday passed a bill that seeks to prohibit men and boys who think they are females from participating in female athletic programs, moving to the national stage an issue that has thus far mainly played out in state legislatures and individual sports associations. The legislation, titled the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act, sponsored by Greg Stube, who is out of Florida, passed on a party-line vote of 219 to 203. The article says it is the first standalone bill to restrict the rights of transgender people. I say it's the first standalone bill to protect the rights of females in sports, considered in the House. Sounds a little different when it's presented that way, huh? The Democratic-controlled Senate, however, is unlikely to take up the measure, and the White House has issued a veto threat. The bill, which failed to advance during the last three Congresses, would amend Title IX the federal civil rights law prohibiting sex-based discrimination in education, to recognize sex as that which is based solely on a person's reproductive biology and genetics at birth. It specifically calls for prohibiting recipients of federal financial assistance 
that operate athletic activities from allowing transgender women, boys, from allowing boys and men and boys from participating in female sports teams. It would not, however, block transgender women and girls from training or practicing with female athletic programs, so long as no female, so no actual female, is deprived of a roster spot on a team or sport. Opportunity to participate in a practice or competition scholarship, admission to an educational institution, or other benefits. This is about protecting women's sports now and into the future. Uh, That was said by Elise Stefanik. Uh, The highest-ranking Republican female in the chamber said at a press conference ahead of the vote on Thursday, quote, Biological women and girls should only be competing against other biological women and girls. That was uh, Beth Van Doon, I think is how you say her name, out of Texas. And I don't care how many surgeries you have. I don't care how many chemicals you put into your body. You are not going to be a biological woman. The Biden administration announced that the president would veto the bill if it landed on his desk, arguing that it discriminates against children. The administration earlier this month in a set of proposed changes to Title IX criticized policies that broadly ban transgender athletes from competing on sports teams consistent with their identity. The Education Department's proposal, which has yet to undergo a period of public comment, will not prohibit transgender athlete bans in their entirety. However, and local school districts will still be able to enact policies that limit athletic participation based on a set of sex-related eligibility criteria if the rule is finalized into law. If you have a daughter that competes in athletics, I hope that you're responding to this rule. An additional proposal released by the Biden administration in June would amend the definition of sex discrimination in Title IX to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Oh, man, the Pentagon released a newly declassified video of a UFO soaring above the Middle East last year during a Senate hearing on Wednesday. The footage captured by a U.S. military drone shows a mysterious spherical orb zooming across the sky above an active military zone. Officials have no clue what this fast-moving orb is. Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick the director of the Pentagon's new All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO, revealed as he played the video during a Senate committee on armed services hearing. This is essentially all the data that we have of this event, Kirkpatrick said. It's going to be virtually impossible to fully identify that just based off of that video. He noted, however, The AARO doesn't believe the object presented any apparent threat to airborne asset safety. In his presentation, we have no idea what it is, sir, but we do not believe it presented any threat. (laughs) He said the incident is one of about 650 reported sightings of UPAs, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. That's the new name the government has given to the traditional UFO. The recently formed office is investigating. Despite the unexplained sightings, Kirkpatrick said there is no suggestion of alien activity. AARO has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, 
or objects that defy the known laws of physics, he said at the hearing. Most UPAs, or UFOs, turn out to be balloons, aerial systems, clutter, natural phenomena, or other readily explainable sources, Kirkpatrick added. Really, is that why you're showing an orb that you have no clue what it is? Hmm. Wednesday's hearing and presentation was only the second public government meeting about UFOs in the last 50 years. Are we opening Area 51 or what? Like, I think it's time. Tell us everything. Is the Earth flat? Is there another world on the moon? Is the moon even real? Just kidding. I believe everything the government tells us. They are here to help us. Democratic West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin butted heads with U.S. Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm on Thursday during a Senate hearing on what? What else would she be talking about besides green energy? Manchin expressed frustration with the Inflation Reduction Act's tax credit for electric vehicles, taking issue, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, taking issue with loopholes in its distinction between manufacturing and processing of materials. We want this done in America. We don't want this done overseas because basically there's no urgency for our manufacturing to ever do this, Manchin said. The Democratic senator claimed that by grouping the production of cathode powder, lithium, and other materials for battery production into processing, the Energy Department was loosening its commitment to manufacturing electric vehicles domestically. He continued, that's the problem I'm having with it. If we're going to get something for it, I don't want to be relying on foreign supply chains. I'd rather have it right here in the United States or at least in North America. We have better control. Granholm pushed back on Manchin's criticism, saying that the supply chains are trending toward domestic production due to the Inflation Reduction Act's provisions. We should all feel really pleased to note that in this battery supply chain, since these laws and since the beginning of the president's term, there have been 150 battery companies or a supply chain element that have announced they are opening up in the United States, Granholm said. But have they opened yet? And have they already received some of their taxpayer money? That would be interesting to look into, wouldn't it? Where it would have been, to your point before, in China or Asia, 150 across all of these states. That equals almost $100 billion worth of investment in the United States. The Inflation Reduction Act, the legislation from which the rules and others pertaining to things like North American Final Assembly stem, became law over seven months ago with President Biden's signature. The policy that this committee and that your leadership as well as others has passed matters. And that's why we're seeing all of these companies come to the United States, including extraction for extraction, for processing, for manufacturing, for the whole supply chain, Granholm added. Under the Act's guidance on critical minerals, 40% of the value of them in the battery must be extracted or processed in the United States or a country with which the United States has a free trade agreement or be recycled in North America for this year, according to the Treasury Department. The required percentage will see incremental increases of 10% each year until it becomes 80% in 2027. 
if a newly purchased electric vehicle meets the proposed mineral and battery component requirements, it can get $7,500 credit, according to the Treasury Department. If it only meets one of them, the electric vehicle will have $3,750. On a U.S. government-run website, a list of vehicles that currently have eligibility for credit is publicly available. I'm sure that it is, and I'm sure that those companies probably have a lot to do with Jennifer Granholm's job, how she got it, and the Biden administration in general. President Joe Biden is preparing to make his intention to seek a second term official next week with advisors planning to launch his reelection campaign as soon as Tuesday. Three sources familiar with the plan said, even as advisors have said for months, that no formal timetable had been settled on to launch Biden's 2024 campaign. They have long eyed April 25th, the anniversary of Biden's 2020 campaign announcement, as an informal target. And as he did four years ago, Biden would launch his candidacy with a campaign video message, the sources said. The timing and method of the announcement mirror how the Obama-Biden ticket launched its re-election bid in 2011. Jen O'Malley, Dylan, and Anita Dunn, senior White House advisors overseeing the coming rollout, both worked on former Barack Obama's re-election effort. Other operatives expected to take roles in the 2024 campaign have been readying for the launch, with top advisors sending signals in recent days to get ready. We are all shocked that something in the Biden administration looks exactly like something in the Obama administration, said absolutely no one paying attention. As the sitting president, rather than a candidate aspiring to the office, Biden is not likely to launch the kind of barnstorming tour he did in 2019 after his announcement. Instead, he is likely to follow the precedent of other incumbents by employing something of a rose garden strategy for much of this year. Uh, barnstorming? That man called a lid like every day at 3 p.m., had less than 50 people per event, and almost punched a union worker in the face and told black people they're not black unless they vote for him. Let's be a little more realistic and honest with what his campaign was. Even if Biden won't officially hold campaign events until next year, he is expected to continue to travel the country promoting his legislative accomplishments and using congressional Republicans as his primary sparring partners until the Republican nominating race produces his general election opponent. Advisors caution, plans could change based on a variety of factors. One source said nothing is official until Biden announces it himself. But oh boy, is my jelly bean bet looking good right now, and I am happy about that. That is your everything yesterday, this morning, on a Friday evening. Again, I apologize for the late drop, and I will be on Liberty Happy Hour on Twitter Spaces in exactly one hour. Please join us there. I hope you guys have a great weekend, and I will see you on our live stream Sunday evening at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, Patriots and Petticoats, make sure you check it out. You guys take care. Have a wonderful weekend. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission 
from any government. Have a great day.